Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Mother Jones Radio, Rachel Maddow, and The Majority Report. Jesus Christ, um, you know, it was always an assumption on my part that he actually existed. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Even when I was growing up and I believed in religion, I thought, uh, you know, Muhammad, we know he's a historical figure. Like him or dislike him. Well, naturally, him or Muhammad existed. Jesus didn't. That's <laughs> typical, okay. right. Uh, Moses, you know, we weren't sure existed. Sure. You know, he's, historically. He's but I thought Jesus existed. The question is, what did Jesus do? But it turns out that might not be true. Wait, uh, but the Da Vinci Code is coming out. <laughs> they tell me that Jesus lived. And then he got married. He got a couple of kids. He's and got he a, was a big whore. He had a house in Scarsdale. That's what actually the, the sort of that's what the Da Vinci Code two will suggest. Yeah. Is that right? But there's another movie that suggests that perhaps Jesus didn't even exist. I'm not sure it does suggest that. Well, luckily, we have the director, the producer, and the narrator in the studio, and he can tell us all about it. It's Brian Fleming who uh, put together the God who wasn't there. Uh, Brian, welcome to the Young Turks. It's great to be here. All right, great to have you. Uh, first of all, I watched the documentary. It was amazing. There's a lot of great things that I learned from it. Thank you. Uh, but one thing I was unclear about is what I was just talking about. Is the contention that Jesus didn't exist at all, that he was a myth? Or is it that the, a person, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, existed, but what he did was mythology? Right, and then we've turned him into somebody who he was not. No, from looking at the evidence, uh, I've determined the most likely conclusion is that he didn't exist. Uh, you can never prove a negative, or it's very difficult to prove a negative to an absolute certainty, but it appears for all the world that, uh, well, we have no records from z- like 0 to 33 when he was supposed to have lived. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no contemporary records whatsoever of him. Then for the next 30 years, we see the development of Christianity. But this early Christianity didn't have a historical Christ. It had a mythical Christ. They never mentioned Bethlehem. They never. The early Christians basically didn't believe in what you and I would call the story of Jesus. What did they believe? They believed that this savior uh, figure, Jesus, who was the son of God and a God-man, descended to an upper, a mid-realm between heaven and earth died and then rose up again to his father and by meditating upon this story it was called a savior cult and it was very popular at the time you know jesus wasn't the only one of these figures uh and they believed that meditating upon this story and learning the secrets learning the mysteries of uh this story you could do what jesus did when did uh, when did the sort of process of turning jesus into this figure that we now think of him today when did that process begin that began around 70 with the uh the uh the writing of mark mark is the first those were gospel. good times by the yeah. way 70 and even <laughs> yeah. yeah, the 70s. Yeah, yeah. the 70s. They were the free love, yeah. people making stuff up, figures coming out of nowhere. It was good. good the original 70s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Mark wrote uh, a gospel that for all the world appears to be allegorical. It does have the story of Jesus in it. It doesn't have his birth. It doesn't have many of the other things we would call the story of Jesus. The whole history, quote-unquote history of Jesus, or quote-unquote biography of Jesus, actually got built piece by piece, starting from 70 and going forward. Let, All right. Let, let, I, have, I have a thousand questions. Let, let me get a tiny bit of background, because your questions are, are probably be more uh, in-depth than mine, because I have not seen the movie, and, and you have. Uh, Mark wrote his gospel around 70. Where does that fall in? Back up. Help me. Help some of our listeners out. The order 
order of the Gospels when they were written. It's the first, correct? Mark is the first. Yeah. So, yeah. so the first one written is written in 70. Right. And, and then the others and are written. And it was Matthew the other and two. Luke. And 70 is the earliest. I date it there because that's the most conservative estimate. Some people say it's as late as 90. We know it was after 70 mm-hmm. because the destruction of the Jewish temple happened in 70. Mark refers to it. So okay. we know it was after that. You see, what I find to be interesting is the gap that you talk about in the movie. And we have a little clip of that. I want to play it because, you know, Mark just talked about how, you know, there's the 0 to 33 when Jesus theoretically lived, you know. And then there's this gap between 30 and 70 that's kind of inexplicable, and we'll try to explain it in a second. And then after 70, then you begin to see the Gospels and and what you see in the Bible today. So let's show a little piece uh, of the God who wasn't there. You can see it on theyoungturks.com here, obviously. And And we'll also be telling you how you can get a hold of the movie. And you'll hear it on the radio. Here you go. Let's go back in time to see what really did happen. Uh, Too far. Let's go back to the first century in the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ is said to have lived this life here in the first three decades of the century, dying somewhere around the year 33. The Gospels all came later. Mark was the first one written, and the other three are clearly derived from Mark. Mark mentions the destruction of the Jewish temple, which happened in the year 70. So the Gospels all came later than that, probably much later. There's a gap of four decades or more. Most of what we know about this period comes from a man who says he saw Jesus Christ come to him in a vision. He was the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. After many days of hard traveling, Saul's caravan was near its destination, Damascus. The journey was nearly over. Then suddenly... The master, he is ill. The light, the light. Saul. Saul. Why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? Paul says the Lord told him to start spreading the word of Jesus Christ, and he did it with a vengeance. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, for I see that you are in the bond of iniquity. Paul was a bit of a scold, but the salvation he offered through the God he called Christ Jesus was very popular. He traveled widely and in his wake left behind groups of new Christians who formed the early Christian church. Paul wrote lots of letters about Christianity. In fact, he wrote 80,000 words about the Christian religion. These documents represent almost all we have of the history of Christianity during this decades-long gap. And here's the interesting thing. If Jesus was a human who had recently lived, nobody told Paul. Paul never heard of Mary, Joseph, Bethlehem, Herod, John the Baptist. He never heard about any of these miracles. He never quotes anything that Jesus is supposed to have said. He never mentions Jesus having a ministry of any kind at all. He doesn't know about any entrance into Jerusalem. He never mentions Pontius Pilate or a Jewish mob or any trials at all. Paul doesn't know any of what we would call the story of Jesus, except for these last three events. And even these, Paul never places on earth. Just like the other savior gods of the time, Paul's Christ Jesus died, rose, and ascended all in a mythical realm. All right, there you have it. And uh, 
that's the story of uh, Paul that fills in the 40-year gap there. What was right? the clip from? I couldn't I see it well enough. Where, where was it? What was the clip that you used from? Oh, that's from uh, uh, an old uh, 1950s show that's now, unfortunately, in the public domain. Uh, God, I forget the name of it, but it was a series of... Uh, it's a TV show. A, it was a TV show that was made to uh, uh, proselytize. Yeah. All right, so... Looked good. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of old clips on there from old movies or TV shows that, that, are, that are very funny, actually. Yeah, there's two other different movies that I use throughout the film. That's right. And uh, this is the movie, The God That Wasn't There. So I, I got to understand this. So the guy theoretically lives between 0 and 33. In that 40-year gap, Paul comes into play, and he's the one that really spreads the word. Paul, though, and I really, you have to understand, I didn't grow up a Christian. I don't know this story. Paul's not part of the original apostles, right? No. no he's no. not part of the 12 apostles. He's considered an apostle, but he's, he wasn't one of the disciples. He uh, was not one of the disciples. Absolutely not. Uh, mo no Christian claims that. Okay, now, what do we read in the New Testament? Is it what Paul writes, or is it what Matthew, Luke, etc. write? Oh, there's a variety of writers. Uh, uh, Paul wrote uh, his epistles, his letters, mm -hmm. uh, and about 80,000 words have been roughly confirmed to be about Paul. And in those 80,000 words, he, he doesn't mention. Uh, and, and, and that's Jesus in the having, New Testament. That's in the New Testament, yes. Okay. Now, Mark, Luke, etc., they were part of the original disciples. No. no those, their no, names no. were. The thing is, these Gospels were circulated without names mm -hmm. for decades and maybe uh -huh. even centuries before somebody wrote a name at the top. Purely, I mean, if... Basically, the name of the person was really Matthew, who wrote Matthew, was purely a coincidence, because that was not at all uh, what was written on the, at the top of it before. So, so the disciples never wrote any of the New Testament? No, yeah. no, that's been a, that's, but that's really worked for, on Christians for a long time. Many Christians believe that's true, but no biblical scholar even claims that. Do oh. you cover it all in the documentary? They were, they were almost certainly, I'm sorry, it just occurs to me. I mean, they were almost certainly dead. That's oh, right. they were I definitely dead. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's what I don't understand. <laughs> what a like, 98-year-old guy like, I remember when Jesus... I mean, no, that's no. not at all. Okay, no, so. no disciple wrote anything that we have a record of at all. So the Gospels, Paul, everything written in the New Testament is written basically... Like, Paul started writing it somewhere in that 40-year gap... And then everybody right. else comes into play after the year 70. Right. Right. 70 years after Jesus uh, was 70, born. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Early Christianity and then the advent of the Gospels, and that started forming uh, the kind of Christianity that we know. That's and then the, the order. The yeah. interesting part of just, I mean, among the four main Gospels that were, that were chosen for the, for the Bible, because there's a slew of other ones, um, but Matthew and Luke... Um, do you talk about in the documentary at all about the Q source in which they seem to both pull from? They seem no. It seems to be a collaboration right, that you exactly. get from Matthew and Luke from Mark and this Q document, which is supposed to be this un... It's we don't have it. Yeah, it's never been you formed. You can piece it together but, from but, them. But you see, yeah. you know, the writer of Luke and the writer of Matthew who didn't know each other, but they seem to be pulling from a similar source that Mark doesn't have, and then John is just out in his own crazy world. His gospel is significantly different and much more, I would say, um, it, <sighs> that's the word I'm looking for. It's it's much more cerebral, <laughs> I guess. Crazy, you might crazy, be looking yeah. for. It's, uh, yeah, uh, it's the, uh, the most acid trippy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. We're talking to Brian Fleming. He's the director and producer and narrator of The God Who Wasn't There. Um, now, Mark, so none of these dudes lived when Jesus did. They're just no. getting stories from somebody who told somebody who told somebody, but that wasn't written down before. Just word of mouth 40 years later, and they, and they write it down. And that's why when you go in the Bible, a lot of people might be confused. Good Christians, they read the Bible, they say, wait a minute, that, that doesn't really jive with the other gospel, and that's a little off, and that's not exactly right. And they're saying things that are a little... And sometimes very different than each other. That's right. Yeah. And, and I guess the reason for that is because they weren't there. 
Yeah, the, the thing is you could write anything you wanted to write. And uh, it, it's overwhelmingly likely that Mark didn't even think he was writing history. He mm-hmm. was doing what's called midrash, which is you, you meditate upon old scriptures. From that, you have visions essentially or you, you get inspiration. And then you write a new story that is essentially an allegory. And that's that's what Mark looks like because there isn't there isn't anything that w- yeah. in Mark that should be there if he were writing history, now such you, as Jesus being born. You make example. some powerful points that uh, that uh, uh, Paul, right? That's what we're talking about, Paul. Right. Mm-hmm. Paul, that, you know, Paul doesn't mention any of the things that that are now associated with the, the sort of Jesus's rise to popularity and then his and then his uh, demise. Um, but just because I mean, it's not like there was a paper then. Just because Paul didn't know about it, didn't mean that others. Because Paul didn't know about it, didn't mean that others did know about it, and Paul just not the kind of thing he heard about in whatever circles Paul traveled. Is that not entirely possible? That's or? an argument that's used. It's just if you look at the evidence, it it's really sort of a technical out where you've got one chance in a million that maybe Jesus did live and Paul happened to write all 80,000 words he writes. Getting in arguments with other Christians where if Jesus had lived and there was that story to tell, he immediately would have called upon a story that we know from uh, the Gospels. There are all these points where Paul should be mentioning the life of Jesus. Uh, and should be mentioning his connection uh, to Jesus through others, and he, he never does. And well, in the quote we we didn't get to there, it was, it was just about to come up, Paul says something like, if Jesus had lived or... Yeah, if, if Christ had been on earth, he would not have been a priest. That was in another argument that he was in. And that's in the New Testament. Right. It's been mistranslated because no, nobody translating it uh, from the original Greek could believe that Paul would write that because that meant Jesus didn't exist. So it's been translated as if he were here. Now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. If he were here. But when when you have somebody who knows Greek look at the, uh, well, not the original, but what is an approximation of the original, it's clear it, it, if Jesus had been. And, and some of the writers apparently talk about Jesus as if he lived not at, at, at zero as we have it, but 100, 200 years before uh, you know, oh, there were lots of Christianities as a thing, and they all and they, mm-hmm. uh, they many of them believed things were completely different. And given just a flip of a coin, that could be the Christianity we have today. We could have a story of Jesus that did happen, you know, two hundred years before, because some people did believe what that. You say, it could be thirty years before, because some people say Herod had Jesus killed as an adult, which of course puts it in a different place entirely. Any one of those could have won out, and w- and Christians today would absolutely be declaring that was a true story. Right, but that's I mean that's the interesting point that you guys kind of just jumped over real fast you mentioned uh that many christians believe when they read when they read the bible that the gospel writers were actually his apostles yeah i think i would say and most believe that actually right. i and, believed it and i think the interesting part is you know many of these devout christians catholics i mean whatever sect you're looking at they never actually study the history of christianity or you know and and, and once and we were talking about this before we started the interview once you start to dissect the history of how Christianity came about and, you know, how, how the Gospels evolved. I mean, there's a number of Gospels. I mean, even the Gospel of Thomas, which is supposed to be actually written by, I believe, one of the Apostles that was that was driven away. And, I mean, there's, there's so many weird, intricate stories that I don't know how one could ever believe in the fiction of the Bible once they start dissecting the history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But most of these, these people that go to church every day, they never open a book. They, they don't know the history of the own religion that they believe so, so, so strongly. I show that in the movie. I right. interview Christians outside a uh, Billy Graham crusade in uh, Pasadena, and they're just quizzed about very basic things that you would think anyone who had devoted their entire life to a religion would know. And they're just given an opportunity. Tell, tell me about early Christianity. How the word spread after Jesus? 
They're clueless. They have right. no. They don't even know what the story is supposed to be. They don't even have a lie to tell. They mm-hmm. just, they've got nothing. They because yeah, they're they don't purposely. Know. It seems like the church is purposely avoiding that. Oh, so, yeah. It's a dangerous subject to bring because up. Because once you Very get dangerous. into it, you're yeah. like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't. That doesn't quite make sense, and that doesn't make sense. And wait, and you begin to really question. And you mentioned in the movie. The, the biggest sin, the one that you cannot recover from, apparently, in the Bible is if you have doubt. If you doubt the Holy Spirit, you are eternally right. damned, and right. there is no forgiveness. Right. Well, let me, can I, well, we're going to. we got to take the yeah, break. Yeah, let's you come back. Around, we'll we'll come back yeah. with uh, Brian Fleming the, uh, of, of the movie The God Who Wasn't There. Really interesting. Come right back on The Young Turks. Indiana legislators are working hard to define conception as the beginning of life. They did lose an earlier part of that same legislation that would have closed down most of the abortion clinics in the state. Other states are trying to ban abortion again as well. Legislatures in Mississippi, Georgia, Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So abortion is, alas, not at all a dead issue. But what the motivations are behind the anti-abortion movement are a little more suspect than they used to be. Christina Page has written a new book called How the Pro-Choice Movement Saved America. And get this subtitle, Freedom, Politics, and the War on Sex. Christina Page, welcome to Mother Jones Radio. Hi, Angie. How are you? It's good to have you here. Thank you. The War on Sex. You mean sex per se, the act of human coupling? Yes. That's what we have in in store for the American public here. This is really, and what I, I hope to expose in my book, is that this this uh, conflict isn't just about legal and safe abortion. It's far more encompassing and far more sinister than what the Amer- average American understands it to be. Well, you know, when you talk about people who are anti-sex, and I think that theory has been out there for a lot of us, underlying all of the political arguments that these people, these people just don't like sex, or they don't like sex outside the very, very narrow definition they think it belongs in. But... Are we talking about a politically aware agenda to move sex back into the hidden category? Are we talking about motivations these people carry but aren't even acknowledged by themselves? Which are we talking about? Well, you know, I think that it's very much acknowledged by the professional pro-life groups. I think that pro-life Americans uh, don't subscribe to really what the next wave of uh, an agenda that's well underway by uh, most pro-life groups today. And what we're seeing is a wholesale attack on the right to use contraception. At this point, the pro-choice movement has been leading efforts to furnish Americans with more family planning, um, greater prevention techniques. At each turn, we face a deep and well-financed resistance and opposition to each and every single one of those efforts by the pro-life movement. Well, in your book, you, you tackle the fact that that's an apparent contradiction. If you don't want abortion, it is in your best interest to support contraception. We know contraception is effective. It's 85% effective at preventing abortion. In fact, um, what we see is, you know, right now only 5% of the nation's uh, sexually active uh, women are not using any contraception, 5%. And from that 5% comes 50 
percent of the nation's abortions. We know contraception is effective. And what we have now is a campaign by the Right to Life movement that has, by, because they've by and large won the abortion debate, they have moved on to the next phase of their agenda, which is rolling back the rights to contraception, stripping people of access to the very things that prevent abortion. Well, let's get behind the curtain, then. If this is all a curtain to hide the fact that they're anti-sex, who is anti-sex and why? Well, who is anti-sex and why? It's certainly, you know, 85% of Americans are having sex once a week. So it's not the vast majority of Americans. What we really have here is the smallest um, and and extraordinarily vocal um, religious uh, and fundamental uh, wing of of uh, a political movement that that really is deeply offended by any sexual act that doesn't lead to procreation. And we can see this, you know, you don't have to look far on their websites or in their literature to discover that they are offended by contraception, that they um, are doing everything in their efforts to keep contraception from the American public. It probably doesn't take too much of a stretch then to extend this into other arguments that on the face of it have nothing to do with contraception, for example, gay marriage or or equal rights for homosexuals. Yeah, I mean, the only two things that these two groups have in common, people who use contraception and people who are in gay relationships, is that they don't procreate. And that's offensive to the, the Christian right and to these political groups. And that's really why attacking Roe is a trifecta for them. They get important gay rights in Lawrence v. Texas. They strike at the core of the Roe v. Wade decision, and they draw into question whether Griswold v. Connecticut, the uh, Supreme Court decision that granted um, couples the right to use contraception, is constitutional as well. I'm always loath to paint things too black and white. It's like when you say Republicans are universally bad. I mean, on the face of it, that's not true. Is this representative of a schism within the fundamentalist right wing? I mean, are there people who genuinely are anti-abortion but not anti-sex? Well, you know, I tried to make a real distinction in my book between these political groups, you know, these organizations that are carrying the banner of pro-life Americans, and the actual pro-life population of this country who will take every effort to see the nation's abortion rate decline, including looking at the most promising strategies, which is, furnishing Americans with greater access to contraception. I mean, 85% of Catholics agree with the use of contraception and practice it themselves. So, yes, what we are seeing is a very, very um, intense and and powerful wing of the pro-life movement, certainly the wing that has the ear of George W. Bush. And their agenda is not just about ending abortion. As a matter of fact, preventing abortion has become problematic for the pro-life movement at this point. How so? Well, because their strategy is to uh, attack the very things that offer the most promise at reducing the nation's abortion rate. You know, for example, we as a country have witnessed the highest abortion rates during the presidencies of pro-life presidents. And yet, it was during our first pro-choice presidency, Bill Clinton, that we witnessed the most dramatic decline in abortion rates in recorded history. That's a great irony. It is, and it's also something, a trend that's uh, visible all over the world. In countries that have adopted bold pro-choice policies, we witness the lowest unintended pregnancy rates, the lowest abortion rates in the world. Conversely, the ones that have adopted the agenda of our domestic pro-life movement have outlawed abortion, made contraception hard to come by. These are the countries that have higher rates than we do, 
in some cases, twice the U.S. rate. Um, and so we, we, this is the debate this country needs to be having. It's, it's, it's taking a, the American public has a lot of information about abortion, most of it wrong. Christina Page, I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. The minor fall and the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah. 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 Back on the Young Turks, Jenk, Ben, and Chill with you. We're talking to Brian Fleming. He's a, a director and producer and narrator of The God Who Wasn't There. And, uh, Mark, I tell you, you know, before I watched the movie, uh, I, I Brian, thought... Mark wrote the oh, gospel. Brian did the see, movie. Even they confused me with all the marks running this is, around. This is the gospel of Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, before I watched the movie, I thought, well, I'm sure Jesus existed. It's just, you know, what did he do? Now you got me believing there's an excellent chance he never existed. Because even the uh, even the even the cynics uh, like uh, us have bought into it, that theory that at least the, the, that history is right. I was the same way. I'm 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 really interested in crackpot theories, and that's what I thought this you know Jesus didn't exist theory was. I looked into the JFK assassination and ended up making a movie out of that. And uh, I'm interested in all sorts of you know theories and why people believe the myths that they do. And I thought that I was going to make a study of these people who had decided Jesus didn't exist and examine them. And then when I looked at the evidence that they had, I realized, oh, you're not the crazy ones. It's the, <laughs> it's the other side that's, that that uh, is, is has got all the hallmarks of really poor research and bad reasoning. Uh, we're talking to Brian Fleming. He is the writer and director of uh, The God, uh, of, excuse me, The God Who Wasn't There. The website is thegodmovie.com. That's I right. assume you can buy it there. And you can well. see clips if people want to see more than they, they saw here. You can see clips at um, thegodmovie.com. Okay, thegodmovie.com, and, and you can also buy it there. Uh, you mentioned in the last segment um, that there were other Christianities that that, 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 that predated what we, what we consider Christ's birth. And when you say other Christianities, did... Were there ideas about a Christ figure or specifically someone with that name prior to the year one or zero? No, I don't think there's any record of that. There were other figures that were just like Christ going back hundreds of years. Uh, there were just like Christ in, in what way? Uh, in they died, they stayed dead for three days, and then they rose up into the air. And the mm -hmm. way that you commune with them is to eat bread, which is their flesh, and drink wine, which is their blood. This is an old, old story. And that, right. and, and that goes back, and there are hundreds of, uh, hundreds of years prior. Oh, yes. That, that ritual related to a savior figure mm -hmm. is it's extremely old piece of evidence. If you look at the, at the story that, you know, the Gospels each kind of generally try to pan out for you, you can find each one of those traditions. Um, it, it, it's a throwback to all the religions of antiquity. I mean, it's all been done before. I it's mean, a brilliant way, synthesis. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's, that's why it won. It's Every, very... I mean, Nothing really is original in what they say. What I wonder is why the Jesus figure, I mean, because I do believe there was historically a man that walked around named Jesus, whatever you did. Watch I don't movie. know. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think there was any such man. I, I, I don't think there was. And now having, uh, knowing what I know about the history of it and having watched the movie, I don't believe there was a Jesus of Nazareth. I'm just curious right. why, I mean, and, and, and I think it's definitely something that can be argued back and forth. And, and if he did exist, I mean, because, you know, I actually haven't seen the entire uh, documentary yet. Um, 
why he was glorified so much? What was it about him? I mean, like, who was his publicist? Because we need <laughs> Well, he wasn't glorified in his day. He wasn't right. glorified in the years following what was supposed to have been his day. Right. So uh, it really, if you look at the way Christianity was built, it's almost impossible that he was real. But what you do see is a, this, this brilliant taking of every other religion they could find, mm-hmm. mixing in some, one new innovation was that Jesus was the only one. You couldn't right. have another savior. The Mithras cult and the Addis cult, did. as one of uh, the professors who's going the movie describes it, if you walked on the streets of Rome, it was like, he said, it, there were so many religions, it was like Southern California. Right. <laughs> <There>. <laughs> you would walk down the street and you could join the Addis cult over here in this cave, you know, and you could o- join the, the Mithras cult here. And they were all in the same, they were kind of lounging around, drinking their wine and, and eating their, uh, their bread. Uh, or you could join the Christian cult. The, mm-hmm. the Christians decided, oh, you know what? You can't join the others. You have to commit yourself only to Christ. And that's one of the key innovations that made Christianity win over the other savior cults. Uh, there's too much here to cover. I've got to ask you a real quick last thing here, less than, less than 30 seconds. 30 seconds yeah. is, uh, uh, you have a, a quote in there from the New Testament where Jesus says, if you come, uh, people who don't believe me, come here and put them to death in front of me. Is that that's from the New Testament? That's that is from the New Testament. It's the end of a parable that Jesus tells to show what is going to happen at the end of days. That he says to the disciples, "Don't fret. I know everyone's laughing at you now, but in the when, when the time comes, I will be here and you will kill them in front of me." Brian Fleming is the uh, writer, producer, narrator of The God Who Wasn't There. You can check it out, watch clips, and buy the movie at thegodmovie.com. Brian, thanks for joining us on The Young Turks. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room and I've walked this floor. You know, I used to live alone before I knew you. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch. And love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah. But our next story is, is, is a bit of a thought experiment that comes, it's a thought experiment, but it comes too close to true. Um, picture a world where a woman is a criminal if she has an abortion. Uh, she can go to jail for you know, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years for having an abortion. Picture a world where doctors are, by law, forced to report any evidence of an abortion, where a woman's own uterus can be used as evidence against her in court, where there exists such a job title as, quote, forensic vagina specialist. Okay, vagina specialist, sure, but forensic vagina specialist? There is a world that is like that. It's not just an experiment in your mind. There is a world like that not too far from our borders. In El Salvador, in the nation of El Salvador, all forms of abortion have been illegal for, since 1998. There's been a constitutional amendment to protect a fetus from the moment of conception since 1999. The cover story this forthcoming Sunday in the New York Times Magazine is called Pro-Life Nation. It provides a grim window into a world where all abortion is illegal, no exceptions. Uh, This next interview, of course, brought to you by the South Dakota Tourism Board. We're joined on the phone now by New York Times Magazine contributing writer Jack Hitt. Jack, thanks so much for coming on the show with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, when did you go to El Salvador? Uh, I guess about a month ago. And uh, did, you, uh, did you know when you went there that you would be able to find women who had actually undergone illicit abortions in El Salvador, that you'd be able to find them to talk to? Well, I, I made contact with some uh, people down there, and I told them that, uh, well, first I found out, you know, that, yes, ab- uh, abortion is completely illegal, even in the event of the life of the mother. 
there are no exceptions. So if a woman is going to be, if there's some medical scenario in which a woman will actually die if she tries to carry a child to term, legally she has to die so the fetus can live. Um, well, technically that would that would appear to be true. Uh, the the, the anti-abortion um, proponents, if that's a if that's a phrase, um, <laughs> say that medicine medical technology has progressed to the point that there no longer exists a category known as the life of the mother. Huh. Like, the, the, so that hypothetical scenario I just put forward would, would never happen. That, you'd, you'd never have to kill a woman in order for her to, for, to save the fetus. Well, well there, are, there are situations where you come perilously close. For example, an ectopic pregnancy is when the fertilized egg comes down the fallopian tube and gets stuck. It grows there and will, uh, it will, you know, will not give birth. Um, it will explode. The fallopian tube will burst, and um, then you'll have, you know, a, a massive internal bleed. Um, when that happens, uh, the mother's life is 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 at serious risk. Yeah. Um, in El Salvador, because the constitutional amendment protects the fetus from the very moment of conception, I spoke to a hospital director who explained to me that their ectopic um, policy was to bring an ectopic pregnancy uh, pregnant woman into the hospital and monitor the fetus until the rupture occurred. Wow. Then they would operate. Knowing that the rupture will occur, they have to wait until that happens, putting right. that they woman in that to, kind of danger. They have to maintain the fetal life until it naturally dies. Wow. So either the fetus has to die in the fallopian tube or the tube bursts. And then, of course, you have a very dangerous medical procedure you have to undertake. Um, it's the difference between operating on, appendix, on an appendix before or after it bursts, right? I mean, it's, it's, nice. it goes from a very simple, uh, small surgical procedure to a very complicated, you know, ICU matter. In reading your article, read, read, look at the advanced copy of your article. It's coming out this Sunday in the New York Times. In reading that kind of stuff, I felt like... As physicians, as doctors, I kept expecting you to be telling the story about how the medical community, how doctors are saying in good conscience, this is practicing bad medicine, that we're going to not do this, that we, we, there needs to be some, uh, th there, there needs to be more leeway for doctors to do what's right by their patients. Is, 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 it, is there an activist movement among the medical community against this law in El Salvador and you just didn't talk about it? Or did you really, is there really nothing like that happening? There, there is nothing like that happening. Wow. Um, doctors do quietly resist the law in that they just simply maintain patient confidentiality and don't say anything. But I met many doctors, and they're quoted by name in the piece, who report women when they show up with any sort of uh, perforation or any sort of abnormality in the womb that, that signifies uh, an abortion, at which point the police are called and the girl is arrested in the hospital. Um, uh, one doctor told me that she had seen, you know, a woman chain, uh, handcuffed to her bed with a pol police officer standing guard outside of her room. So you're, you're automatically a criminal, even if you're in the intensive care unit or in, one, in, one, in the case of one woman that I interviewed, in a coma. She's a criminal in a coma. Right. What is, is women themselves go to prison uh, for having abortions? Who else is liable in, in El Salvador? Uh, who else is risking prison if they have Anyone anything to do with abortion? associated with the abortion is at risk of, of going to prison. That uh, obviously includes the abortion provider, whether that person is a professional doctor or an, an amateur doing uh, homebrew uh, remedies. Mm -hmm. uh, that also includes the boyfriend, if he's providing any moral support, or the mother or any family member. They're all at risk. Um, and there are specific uh, articles 133 through 
37 in the penal code uh, very specifically lay out the penalties for everyone tangentially or or centrally involved in the uh, in the crime of abortion. Uh, the woman can get two to eight years if the fetus is determined to have been viable. And this is a very sort of murky area, obviously, when you're uh, when you're dealing with an abortion in the early second trimester. Um, if the fetus is to determined to be viable by the prosecutor, uh, the the charge is upgraded to aggravated homicide, which carries a sentence of a minimum of 30 years in prison to 50 years. I met a young mother who has three children under the age of uh, 15. Uh, who is in prison for 30 years. Because of aggravated homicide. Because of aggravated homicide. Um, wow. So, I mean, they carry the logic of abortion equals murder to its natural endpoint, right. which is that, you know, there's a, kind of, there's a kind of paradox when you say that. I mean, it, it makes a certain sense in the, in the argument, abortion is murder. But then, but then everyone sort of gets tripped up on whether you're going to actually jail the murderer. Because, of course, the murderer is the woman. If, right. Unless it's an, an involuntary abortion, if she makes the decision to do it, then she's making the decision under this logic to Absolutely. commit murder. Yeah. Absolutely correct. So, I mean, that's 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 where the logic inevitably takes you, or you have to sort of soften the metaphor or, or abandon this argument in some way. And even in El Salvador, there was there was there is discomfort at at this idea of criminalizing the woman. I mean, I interviewed one of the uh, anti-abortion activists who who got this uh, law passed, uh, Regina de Cardinal. Um, and she was very clear at saying that the woman is the victim. And when I said, but, but you're, the woman is going to jail, she goes, well, yeah, but she's, she's a criminal because she murdered her baby. So, I mean, in a way, they, they can hold the conflicting ideas in their, in, in, in their heads because it's, it's a hard one to square. Well, you can hold the conflicting idea in your head when when you're debating. You you can you can dance around the argument, but when you've got actual physical women, real humans, going to prison, not squaring the argument means that you're not dealing with reality. I mean, I, I feel I feel the need to reiterate right now that we're not talking about fiction. We are actually talking about a real place. In case you're just joining us, our guest is Jack Hitt, who's a contributing writer to the New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine. He actually has the cover story in this weekend's New York Times Magazine, New York Times Magazine, which is called pro-life nation. It's about uh, El Salvador, where abortion is illegal uh, with no exceptions. And not only doctors, but also uh, p- anybody who assists in the, uh, the procurement of an abortion, or indeed a woman who has one herself, uh, can go to jail. Jack, one of the things I thought was really interesting about your piece is that you note that El Salvador is not the only country that that totally bans abortion. Uh, Chile does, Colombia, Malta, you single out. But El Salvador, you say, is the, is the country that has an active law enforcement apparatus around this stuff. Prosecutors actually employ people to do things like take women's uteruses into evidence if they've been if they've been removed in hysterectomies after botched abortions. I mean, there there's a whole there's a whole system set up within the within the prosecution. Uh, within within prosecutors' offices to to follow up these crimes. Yeah, I interviewed a prosecutor and a judge who's involved in the in the routine uh, you know um, process of of handling abortion cases. And um, yes, when uh, a doctor uh, does a pelvic exam on a woman and sees evidence of an abortion, um, the police are called. And then, if there's any ambiguity in the doctor's uh, assertion, the state has the right to essentially get a search warrant for the vagina and to have a state-sponsored forensic um, gynecologist come and essentially examine the scene of the crime. 
by force, it, by force, if necessary. Well, it's not by force. There is a there's a judicial. Uh, it's like a search warrant that has to be procured first, and and then um, I I have not heard of any woman resisting the search warrant. But if a woman doesn't consent, and there's a search warrant, I mean, if you right, I mean, in American law, right, if you don't consent to a search of your house, and there's a search warrant, your house is going to get searched. Right. Right. That's. Ugh. Uh, there, I, I think the culture does not has not yet uh, produced a woman in the hospital who would resist the search warrant, at least as far as as as, as I w uh, found when I was talking to people. But that 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 role exists. Um, the the country has a forensic institute, it's like their national sort of CSI institute that does all their genetic testing and forensic studies and and and, and DNA collection and that kind of thing. And it's it's doctors from that forensic institute. Who are called in to do a separate um, examination of the of the of the woman for the, the crime scene, the, for the crime scene, the yeah. the vagina or the uterus. Right. I actually have to tell you, I feel physically sick talking to you about this. Well, it's an it's an amazing um, country. I mean, they, the, you know, the the thing is that before 1998, they already had one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws in in the world, um, and. And a variety—I explain this in the in the piece—a variety of sort of interesting church politics and and state politics kind of came together in a perfect storm of changing the law to basically banish all exceptions, um, amending the constitution so that Article One defines the government's prime directive as protecting the uh, the the conceptus from the very moment it comes into existence. Um, that's the state's obligation now. Jack Hitt is a contributing writer for New York Times Magazine. He has the cover story in the Sunday Times Magazine this forthcoming weekend. That is mandatory homework for all Rachel Maddow show listeners. I don't know what else to say about it. Jack, um, thank you for writing this piece. Uh, I think it's going to be a real wake-up call at a time we really need it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The article is called Pro-Life Nation. It's about the complete criminalization of abortion in South Dakota. Oh, I'm sorry, El Salvador, uh, where it has been the law for that abortion is criminal in all cases for the last eight years. Jack Hitt's piece tells you how that looks, what that's like in a modern country in the world that we share a space with on this globe. I will also tell you that uh, at one point in the article, um, Jack goes and talks with an American anti-abortion group, uh, Human Life International, which is based in Virginia. The head of Human Life International describes the situation in El Salvador as, quote, an inspiration. There's a time when you let me know what's really going on below, but now you never show that to me, do you? But remember when I moved in you, and the holy dove was moving too, and every breath we drew is hallelujah, hallelujah. Actions of the civil rights director of Minnesota's capital city, St. Paul, has some residents hopping mad. The Easter Bunny is under attack. 
Well, it's more than the Easter Bunny, Martha. This is Tyrone Terrell's doing. He's the civil rights director for the city of St. Paul, Minnesota. And some of the employees had put up a little display, a little bit of that fake, really bright green plastic grass, a few Easter eggs, and a little colorful sign that said, Happy Easter, and the Easter Bunny, of course. And Mr. Terrell came along and ordered it removed. They could have just kicked out that little sign that said, Happy Easter and kept the Easter Bunny, but they sent the Easter Bunny packing, too. Well, the citizens of St. Paul are not taking this lying down. It didn't take them very long at all to spring into action and to hatch a plan to respond to this atrocity against the mention of Easter. That's well put, <laughs> Martha. They hatched a plan all right. They're putting peeps, those little marshmallow chicks, all around the area where the Easter display used to be. And the peeps are showing up every day, and uh, they're having a lot of fun with it in St. Paul. Are other people picking up this trend? I know that in Northern Virginia, at one particular small shopping center, every year they had an Easter egg roll where the kids would roll colored eggs, uh, like on the White House lawn. This year it's a spring egg roll. What is the mindset of the people who are promoting this exorcism of Easter and the Easter holiday? It's definitely not our Jewish brothers and sisters. They simply pass over these displays. No, it's secularists. It's the ACLU and their allies who want to wipe out any mention of Christianity. I noticed in a supermarket the other day, uh, Hershey's Chocolates had a spring egg assortment. And in years past, there would have been Easter eggs, little eggs you put in Easter baskets, little chocolate eggs and other candies. It's clearly meant for an Easter basket. It's in the Easter colors of pink and blue and green. Definitely, Bob. In fact, it's even hard to even find religious symbols in many of the Easter decorations, like uh, the chocolate crosses or lambs and things along those lines that are more religious in nature. You can't find those in most stores. No, you can't. The chocolate Easter bunny has pretty much replaced any Christian themes in, in the candies. When secularism starts creeping, Christians start peeping. Happy Easter, Bob. Happy Easter to you, Martha. Uh, that was not a joke. That was a, that was not a sketch, courtesy of uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David. I, I it that was. The Concerned Women for America, and as always, the Concerned Women for America are uh, represented by Bob Knight. And he was talking to Concerned Women for America radio host Martha Cleeter. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was looking today, oddly enough, for my chocolate crosses and my chocolate lambs, which used to be so abundant when I was a girl, and now replaced with very secular, I mean, a marshmallow peep, and... Uh, a plastic egg, because as you know, uh, the resurrection of Christ has always been intimately linked with eating chocolate and uh, searching for hidden eggs and playing croquet, for that matter, and wearing a nice hat, your Easter hat and your Sunday going to meeting clothes. I know that's what it was like in the Garofalo household, courtesy of Carmine, Carmine vigilant about us worshiping a giant bunny that comes in the night and leaves baskets with my brothers and sisters' names on them on the dining room table, and we'd wake up, find the chocolate crosses and chocolate lambs inside of these baskets, and the holy bunny would have left them in the night. A little ch chocolate crucifix sometimes. Chocolate crucifix, yes. We saved that for last. You didn't want to eat that right away. That would have been disrespectful to the memory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Um... Then we would go off to church again. That's why we would be wearing our Sunday best, or as uh, some in some parts of the country, your Sunday going to meet and close. And uh, 
we would again celebrate the resurrection of uh, our Savior. And then we would eat uh, a host that tastes not unlike cardboard that would be the body, the actual body of Christ. <clears throat> Sip a little wine, which was the blood. Yes, we would, as children, drink blood and eat of a body of a man that's been dead only a mere 6,000 years, um, according to creationists. Too bad, creationists, they found the missing link. Yes, a fish with a neck that made the transition from the primordial ooze or an uh, aqueous body of water and went on to land. What are you going to do about that, creationists? They found the missing link. No, it's not Sean Hannity. It's a fish with a neck. Hallelujah, 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 Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I know that nearly all of you figured this out with no problem at all, but I did get one email from one of my less observant listeners wondering what happened to the Best of the Left community message board. Well, you've heard me talking recently about the new Frapper map, and maybe I didn't make it clear, but the community message board and the Frapper map are now one in the same. There's a built-in message board right at the bottom of the map. So, you know, you go, you sign up, your little marker shows up on the map, and that's lots of fun and all, but that's also how you communicate, you know, with me and all the rest of the listeners in a big conversational forum that I strongly advocate. So when you go to the website, if you click to go to the community or you click to go to the Frapper map, it takes you to the exact same place. Don't anybody else get confused. So to access all these fun things, go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and uh, all the links are right there. And you can contact me directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Have a good one, everybody.